Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I heard there was like a, a blip that came out of Apple, a, a cough, a little puff of smoke that came out of Apple the other day. I missed it. It just happened so quickly. So hey everybody, welcome to episode 136 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And Mark Rubin in San Jose, California. Hello. All right, so we're, we don't have any Ask MTJC, right, Jaime? <laughs> yes and no, and, and oh. you'll find out later in the show. Oh. Tune in at 11. I'm, I'm trying to be mysterious and teasing, yeah. that, like, yeah. yes and no, we, we sort of do have Ask MTJC. Mm-hmm. Because it's Gregory Archibald Heo that is... Oh. Uh, yes, Esquire. Esquire, right. Is that his real middle name? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> <laughs> that came out of the episode uh, last week when we had him on, on board. I see. Okay, so we have a couple of follow-up items. I, I put this uh, one here really briefly. I just was on. I was actually on the way home on the transit system, uh, the brief history of CAD. Um I just thought, you know, we talk about origins a lot on, on uh, when we talk to other developers and things like that. And actually, it was actually the term CAD or CAD CAM that actually got me to where I am today. It was, I was working as an analog artist drawing, you know, technical drawings, and we went out and got a computer because at that time, the buzzword was CAD CAM mm-hmm. and computer-aided manufacturing, computer-aided design. And so this is just a little clip from Autodesk. I think they're celebrating some 8 million copies sold or something like that, some anniversary. And they just put this little clip together, this little video that shows a short sort of history of CAD CAM all the way back from Alan Turing, you know, kind of inventing ones and zeros and calculations all the way through ENIAC and uh, computers of the, you know, and the small computers and then AutoCAD itself getting invented. And the term CAD, I think CAD was actually... DAC at first, and then it was um, changed to CAD. Anyway, watch the video. That's just a brief little thing. It was it was the CAD CAM push in the marketplace that got me into working on computers. You know, even though I was never got into engineering, I went down the art path, and this is what brought me to where I am today, and why I code and work on computers. 
So we actually used to talk, when I was back in the semiconductor industry, we used to talk about CAD as well, but it was in a kind of a different context. So CAD tools were the tools that were used for uh, designing the physical layout right, of the right. chips, as opposed to the mechanical design like AutoCAD would be used for. This would be uh, for designing where metal layers should be deposited and, and things like that and where etches should happen. Right. Kind of an interesting... Uh, CAD, I think, has many, many different, uh, different, different uses for the name in different right, industries. Right. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, it was it was something before Alan Turing. Oh no, it started with the blueprint. The idea of doing blueprints back in the turn mm-hmm. of the, or before the turn of the century, and somebody accidentally discovered how to make blueprints, and then they could duplicate technical drawings, which then led to the first industrial re- revolution. So, hmm. and then Turing came later. Anyway, the correction. So, <laughs> okay. All right. So another, um, this is a follow-up from just about, you know, our first year of working on more than just code. Uh, this is an article from uh, App Annie, which Mark and I have talked about before. We both use the analytics on Mark, Mark, App Annie. But there's an article here about the fact that they're saying that um, gaming apps still maintain a strong revenue foothold in, in the App Store, on both Android and uh, iOS, mm-hmm. Google Play and, and the App Store. But I think what we've talked about before is even though there's lots of mad revenue being made, and of course last year's uh, was the runaway success was uh, Pokemon Go. It's sort of the it's sort of the, the players we've always talked about. You know, it's the Clash of Clans, Candy Crush, and Pokemon Go are you know they're sweeping, they're keeping the the, the market strong. But I, I question whether that's actually translating down to the independent or the small uh, app studios in terms of their revenues and if they're able to maintain a, a good thing. We've talked to um, friend of the show ryan mcleod a lot about black box and and uh, he's making a decent living on black box but he's not you know quitting his job kind of thing right so mm-hmm. yeah for sure most of the money is made for through a in-app purchase on on the, these freemium games and for those you, you need just a huge amount of volume to make to make good make money it sense, so yeah so, so it makes sense that you know pokemon and things like that are, are the ones that are that are dominating an indie developer i think it's, it's pretty tough to get enough volume to to uh, to make a living off of that stuff and and it's and it's pretty tough to to make just as a single person or a small shop it's hard to make a game that's as uh, popular or as appealing or as sophisticated as the games that these large companies make with these very large staffs right yes for those of you driving at home pokemon go earned 800 million dollars last year so in 110 days or something like that right yeah so total nine hundred fifty million by the end of the by twenty six. We're not making indie developers aren't making that kind of money. No, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, it'd be interesting along the lines of this article. It'd be interesting to to compare that to what the other dominant sector of the app store uh, that is social networking apps uh, right. make in terms of, of revenue. Now it's hard to, harder for us to track that because it's not through an app purchase or or. or buying the apps it's it's more through advertising and they don't necessarily give out those numbers right right but i, I wonder which makes more i i, I kind of suspect that they make more in advertising than the games make oh really hmm. yeah yeah and you think that's like, like the facebooks and the snapchats and the yeah exactly kind of guys right mm-hmm. hmm. yeah these charts are amazing so uh we go towards the middle of this article the the chart showing how quickly these major apps, Pokemon Go, Candy Crush Saga, Puzzles and Dragons, Clash of Clans, how long it took them to get to, um, you know, that, that massive number. And it was 
dramatically faster for for Pokemon Go as a as a revenue generator. And yeah. I'm also looking at the chart for worldwide uh, App Store revenue, which shows 2014, 15, and 16 uh, for Google Play as well as the iOS App Store. And Google Play has increased, but but not by a lot, uh, considering its relative size. Yeah, of distribution, uh, you know, and, and potential addressable market. Uh, but the iOS app store is continuing to, continuing to grow considerably uh, from yeah, year to year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep that in mind for your where to put your monies in terms of uh, development. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And who who owns Pokemon Go? Is that that's not Nintendo, right? N- technically, no. It's uh, their subsidiary Niantic. Or, Niantic. Uh, sorry, uh, the Pokemon Company and Niantic in a combined venture. Right. Right. So. Part part Nintendo, part Google in this case, or Alphabet, I guess. Yeah, so I don't know if you guys see people still playing Pokemon Go, but because because I ride the transit system, I see people to this day still playing it. It's amazing. So, and I know most of the people who were playing it last year aren't playing it any aren't playing it now, right? So, yeah, we'll see when the weather gets better and and they get to a full year cycle and get to summer again and see if uh, see if it has right. any life in it. But the fact that it's not completely dead, having gone through the winter months, is probably a good sign for them. Yeah, because they had a lot of crazy, you know, um, Pokemon hotspot kind of viral stuff going on, right? What do you call mm-hmm. that, where the crowds all co- gather together? It has it's a term for that. Like a flash mob or something like that? Flash mob, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. Next. Uh, oh, this is an interesting article on uh, improving Swift compile times. We've talked about this a bit, and um, I, saw, I just wrote an article um, that has covers a bit of... Uh, people pulling their hair about compile times, especially with Swift. And um, it was interesting, this this article examines a couple of different ways that people are, are um, dealing with their code that uh, by changing the way the style of coding actually makes uh, a difference in in um, uh, compiler times. One of the, the, the last example they put here, which I thought was kind of interesting, was they've got um, a situation where they've got a large dictionary and they're using type inference to you know let let Swift you know do its magic and figure out all the the types and things like that. Whereas um, when they explicitly said what the um, in the example, in the if you look at the bottom there, the function to JSON, when they, I believe they said they explicitly set up the dictionary, it compiled way faster, like a hundred times faster than using just using um, type inference. And the other example, which is the sec, the first one there, um, halfway up the page here, this add numbers example. Uh, yeah, with the with the uh, what do you call that um, uh, uh, over uh, operator overloading, mm-hmm. uh, the plus greater than or plus less than I guess that is. Um, when they didn't use um, they didn't use the operator overall overloading, they got a uh, I think three hundred times faster compile compilation. So yeah, things to consider. What do you guys think of that? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, the JSON one is pretty interesting because there really isn't that much difference in how you would write the two, the two versions. I'm looking at them. Right. Um, so it's not as if you like have to do some crazy, this crazy hack that nobody knows about to, uh, to make it better. So uh, I, could, I could see using this and it's actually kind of nice. Um, well, no, I, I could see either one. Like, I guess I'd have to flip a coin as to which style I like better. If, if I didn't know that one was a hundred times faster. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> not, the thing, now, that right? I, now that I'm really looking at it, I'm like, mm, I don't so, know. Let's I, see. I so in the, in the in the JSON one, the only difference is that they either either return the 
the dictionary directly in the return statement, or they create right. a dictionary first, assign all the values to it, and then return the dictionary. And that's a hundred times faster. That's that's unbelievably. Yeah, just creating yeah. an empty dictionary and then filling it with with yeah. numbers, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, they're also as a difference for those of you driving at home, we can't see what we're looking at, but it'll be in the show notes. Is they're also explicitly setting those keys right. rather than having it do the mapping from um, you know a string over to string right. any. Right. Mm-hmm. So I guess mm-hmm. that's what's causing the the Swift yeah. compiler to yeah. do that, but. If I had to guess, I would think this is just an optimization that Apple hasn't gotten around to as, as Swift has, yeah. you know, still continued to to evolve uh, pretty rapidly. So uh, while it's a good sort of trick now, I bet it won't be that different, um, you know, a year or two from now. Especially now that it's been pointed out here. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this, this may be a reason to file a radar on something like that, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Or submit a pull request. I mean, that's an option. Okay. Yeah. So for the novices in the crowd, what is what do you mean by pull, make a pull request on? I, I you guys talk about that a lot on, oh, on looking yeah, at swift.org. Yeah. Why, why don't you give us a sort of the TLDR on that? Oh, I guess that's a, a fair point. So um so for a pull request, that would be where uh let's say you have your your own fork, right? So there's uh, swift.org and and there's a GitHub project where Apple's official sort of copy of the Swift source code is, but you can fork that into your your own copy. So you know, heaven forbid Swift um, ever went away and Apple said, no, never again, you'd still have it available, right? It, it's open source. It's it's always available for the community. For a pull request, you are saying, hey, I would like to make my changes available in your copy of the repository, right? In, in this case, you would be doing it upstream from, from your, your fork over to Apple's um, version, um, that's kind of more by convention. They, they, they could do a pull request over to your copy if they really wanted to, but, uh, they probably won't for practical reasons. Cause it's, it's kind of nice to have like the centralized mothership, as I think I mentioned, uh, once or twice during the mono repo discussion, uh, episode or two ago. Mm-hmm. So the pull request is essentially, um, the set of changes that you want to be incorporated from one version of the software into another version. This could be from different branches. This could be from one fork to another. Um, it just sort of depends, right? In, in general, it's more like the formalized mechanism by which you uh, make changes to the official copy of the software. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a funny name, right? Because usually you think of a pull as updating your branch, let's say, from master, right? To get changes in master, you pull them into your branch. Uh but this is asking this is really you want to merge your changes into a central location so you're so you're asking them to pull your changes it's 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 a con- it's a funny naming convention right just, just like like many things related to git it it, it has yep. funny naming and if you think about where git came from as uh Linus Torvald's method for handling uh source code changes to linux it sort of makes sense cuz he still controls everything related to what goes into official Linux, right? So mm. from that yeah. perspective, it's like, yes, I, you are requesting that I pull your changes into the right. master repo, but yep. it, it, it's very odd naming convention. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I think that's, Oh, sorry. I missed one. <laughs> uh, so a friend of the show, Aaron, um, Douglas, 
uh, of who's he's the uh, iOS lead over at WordPress. He did a comparison of something that I've been interested in, and that's the comparison between Google Photos, Amazon Photos, whatever they call that, and iCloud Photos. In terms of, um, he was trying to he was exploring whether he should move off of iCloud and onto one of the other two services. So he tested that, them out. Uh, with his uh, photos from 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, so he's, he's starting with cl- iCloud, and he's, he gives an example of what kind of uh, camera he's using, so what the average size shots are, and the fact that he's using RAW, uh, RAW as, a media, uh, as the data format, um, and, the, and comparing the prices of uh, what you get for your dollars, like you know, 200 gigabytes for $2.99 a month at Apple, or $9.99 for a terabyte versus Amazon Prime. Um, and so the comparison was based on storage and costs, and uh, picked a winner from that. And then which how which how they sync, which way they sync, and then some other things. So it was kind of interesting um, little thing. And uh, his his verdict at the end of it was he's going to stick with iCloud Photos, which is interesting. Google did win on one of the things. I think it was on sync, maybe. Yeah, it was the bells and whistles section. Right, right. Well, bells and whistles, yes, right. So interesting uh, thing for those of you driving at home and want to. Yeah decide i currently we carol and i have you know carol's had a digital uh, camera for 17 years we think we figured out um so we have that many pictures uh, going back that far and um we don't currently use any cloud store storage for our photos other than other than the um what do you call that uh um photo i think it's called photo sync the one that where they the syncs it like uh or hundred pictures of yours, right? Um, between our different devices, but uh, yeah, so we we use the photos uh, archive, and so in order to preserve some of them, I've archived, I've taken like certain years and made a separate archive and split it off and stuck it on a removable drive somewhere um, and backed that up. So, so I've I've been looking at this, thinking, well, you know, I keep getting these situations with my phones. Like I have a, I think it's a sixty-four gig iPhone six uh, plus, and you know, now I'm running out of space, and it's because I've got 25 gigabytes of photos on my phone, right? <laughs> so, so it's like, do I, you know, I actually have the first photo I ever took on an iPhone still on here. So I have everything I've ever taken pictures of. I sort of deleted some things, right? But um, the the question for me is, like, should I start putting my stuff up on the cloud? And, you know, where is that cloud? And, you know, what's going to happen politically to that cloud, <laughs> you know? And then do I want to pay so much per month to have that kind of thing? It's kind of, it's secure, you know, is it secure? Does there have backup? What do you guys, what do you guys do with your digital data? Are you clouding things these days or? I'm using, I'm using iPhoto, iCloud now. So you have like a monthly plan, like a 200 gigabyte plan? Yes. Yeah, I have, uh, I forget how much they actually give me. It's a 99 cent per month plan, though. Right. Whatever okay. that is these days. Yeah. And that's enough for me to do all my backups of all my devices and my photos. Right. And, and stuff like that. Yeah, for a buck, I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. it's a no-brainer yeah, no right pretty much, right? Yeah, yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So. For me, this article falls under the what might have been category because about five years ago, I was working with a startup called Relive uh, the first time. Right. So I mm-hmm. actually did more with them later. But uh, at the time, we were building our own cross-platform photo-sharing app, and we had some real nice technology. I mean, you could... You could uh, share photos from iOS, you know, all, all flavor of devices, and Android and Windows, as a matter of fact, uh, plus plus web, uh, and use any of those to share your photos to any of any of the above, and it worked great, and it, and you know it would have been free for customers, uh, but uh, we're just a little ahead of our time because 
uh, well, for one thing, it was before there was 4G, right? So, so under 3G, it took a long time to upload photos, which which kind of made it the usability not as great. Uh, and uh, people just hadn't really caught on to the concept of this yet, and and uh, so so it never really worked out for us. But not too long after, you know, all three of these guys came along with their own versions, and hmm. and ours was, I mean, in my opinion, ours was was just as good as any of them, and it was cross platform. Right, oh, well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Something I think Greg pointed out to me too. If if you dive into iCloud Photos and you decide to go Android next week, you're kind of you're done. You're right? out of luck. Because, yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. That's how they get you. Yeah, that's how they get you. <laughs> <laughs> that they that get in you. your in your iTunes rentals and, and iTunes purchases. What are you going to do with those? Right. Right. Oh. And your Pokemon Go. Uh, points or whatever whatever it is i've never actually played it <laughs> the in-app purchases yeah, yeah the in-app purchase well no i think they're all i think they all add stuff to your account which is cross-platform so maybe oh really be okay. Oh, hey. yeah. oh, i don't okay. think they have anything okay. that's device only but certainly there are many apps where that's not true like um i think if you were to buy super mario run on ios it would not like qualify for you getting it on an android which i think is coming out soon Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but if you took a screenshot of that great game, got great high score that you got that one day, and you stuck it on iCloud and moved over to Android, you're gonna lose that. Indeed, in theory. Yeah, true. In theory. True. <laughs> Unless you're like me and store them on your machine at home. Um, all right, so I guess we get on to the uh, the. I heard there was like a, a blip that came out of Apple, a, a cough, a little puff of smoke that came out of Apple the other day. I missed it. It just happened so quickly. Yeah, it was like a weird sort of drive-by occasion. It was like, okay, thanks, bye. Whole bunch of uh, of, of Apple product news. Um, sort of strange. Like we had talked about, oh, we think an event's coming up, and turns out we were wrong. Uh, we were absolutely wrong. There was no event. It was just sort of a silent update of the Apple Store and a, a press release that went out to, to different places. So uh, not a Tim Cook is up there talking about wonderful things. Uh, maybe that will be happening during the WWDC time frame, but not in March and probably not in spring, it turns out. Um, the, mm-hmm. One of the things they they updated was the iPad, um, but not in the way we thought. So we've been talking about these rumors about uh, updates to the Pro and updates with a mysterious 10-inch iPad that's going to be doing cool stuff. That didn't come out. Nope. In fact, what they did was they dropped the iPad Air 2, um, came out with a new... Uh, sort of a semi-upgrade called the iPad, simply iPad, sort of differentiating it between iPad Pro and iPad. So it's a new iPad or the iPad 3 or the iPad... Okay. I think it's simplifying it down to... There already was an iPad 3. So simplifying it down from, you know, to iPad and iPad Pro is, I think, where the the product line is going. But they they came up with this this new iPad that is a 64-bit A9 processor, Starts at 32 gigabytes at $329 US, um, so considerably cheaper than the $399 um, entry price that they had before. Uh, no rose gold. It is, as folks have noticed, um, somewhat thicker at uh, 7.5 millimeters versus 6.1 oh, really? mm. millimeters. And it's basically more like the iPad Air 1 uh, in that respect. And even the display technology is kind of like that. So. Uh, also slightly heavier at 469 grams versus 437. 
I don't use grams, so I'm going to assume that's a very small amount because <laughs> I know it takes many grams to be ounces. Uh, and they've quoted it as uh, being sort of a, an affordable entry point, right? Um, notably, they're no longer selling the iPad Mini 2, but the iPad Mini 4 is now at 399 right. for 128 gigabytes. Mm. So, yeah, um, it seems like this is going to be the, the entry-level starting point for, for the iPad. And I think as they bifurcate between... Uh, you want hot and fancy, great. You're getting a pro with all of that, that entails and Apple Pencil, latest and greatest processors, the you know, the, the lightest and sleekest and uh and different colors uh will will be exclusive to that. So that means every device now has since they dropped the iPad Air two mini two, um every device has touch ID now, right? Every iOS device that is. Every like every one that they sell, um, like yeah, all currently sell on the market. I believe that's true. Yeah, because the the mini the Air Mini Two was the, was the last one because the three was the first one that had Touch ID. The Mini Three. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Apple Pay yeah. all around. Yeah, I mean, have you seen the performance benchmarks on the new iPad versus the Air Two? I haven't. Uh, I've only seen sort of the press release side of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's cheaper. It's thicker. So it seems like it's a lower end model, but you know, presumably it's been a couple of years, so they can put a faster processor in there. So right. it ought to be faster. It has a better screen least. too, better screen as well. Yeah, right. Yeah. It says here the 64-bit A9, which is first seen in the iPhone 6s and 6s Plus. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, uh, huh, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I, I I guess it gives them more of a of an option to get into the sort of bulk areas that we talked about like um education you know shaving off seventy dollars us from from right. the entry-level price probably helps especially as they they buy them in bulk and get bulk discounts yep. and um, a higher higher end uh storage from the, as the bottom end 32 gigabytes right yeah 32 yeah gigabytes yeah 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 and, and in fact uh, i think 32 gigs across the board for for just about everything right. so so my prediction right. of the 16 gigabyte uh, Apple Car is, is no longer accurate. I have to bump it up to <laughs> to 32 gigs at, at the entry level price. It seems. Well, at least you know the car will have Touch ID, though. Yeah, exactly. Right. To, yeah. to start it up, yeah, that's, to start that's how the you car. That's right. yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. So, Mark, you you um you don't have you have an AirPad two or or you have I still have an AirPad two, uh, iPad or two, iPad, yeah. 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 AirPad. Yeah. AirPad, AirPad, non pro. <laughs> I still have a non pro. Yeah, so I guess I'm probably due for an upgrade, aren't I? So what about you, Jaime? Are you a rock in the air too as well? or I am, and I think I've said on, on many episodes leading up into this one that I was looking to throw down my money, but I was also expecting that Apple would make pro updates. I think I'd mentioned I was looking to bring the uh, Apple Pencil into my life. Um, so I think I fall in line with um, the feedback we got on uh, hashtag AskMTJC from uh, Greg, or I should say Gregory Archibald Keo Esquire. Uh, he says that he's waiting for the iPad Pro refresh before, you know, giving up his money. Uh, and he asks, does the new color option on the iPhone, which we'll get to next, uh, suggest anything about iPhone 8 news and timing? True. And I think I've fallen the same line where uh, there's no real reason for me to buy what's essentially a some, somewhat same device in, in an iPad Air 2 replacement. Uh, I'm really looking to step up into an iPad Pro, I think, is where I'm going to be. Yeah, and it's interesting because the the iPad uh, Pro nine point seven, I think it debuted last spring or spring a year ago, right? Two years ago. Uh, 
Yeah, I think it was Last Ennis North was the first one I saw one. Yeah, Last Ennis North, so that would have been 2016. And the the, um, original 12.9 came out in the fall because that's when I bought mine. So... If they if they keep their one year sort of cycle up, this we should have had a if we were going to have a pro, it would have been now, right? Uh, or we'll, maybe we'll have one in the fall. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking the fall, so I'm going to have to hang out for another six months here before I upgrade. I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So red is Carol's favorite color. Oh, that's good because uh, Apple came out with uh, a little minor update to the iPhone Seven and Seven Plus. That would be their product red version, which, uh, as you might guess, is bathed in red. Um, this is for their uh, AIDS uh, awareness and fundraising. Um, that's coming out in 128 gigs and 256 gigs, and starting at 749 mm-hmm. US. So um, I already own an iPhone 7 Plus. I'm probably not going to buy right, another one right. yeah. <laughs> for giggles, uh, as much as the, the red is, is kind of neat, it's like, uh, like the little red Corvette in the song. Um, as far as the colors go, I, I have seen some folks uh, angry, angry on the internet about the fact that the face is white. I guess it doesn't bother me because I have oh, the silver. Really? Oh. Yeah, I have the silver iPhone, which is silver on the back and white on the front. So I guess it sort of looks natural to me. But I've seen some Photoshop stuff out there saying like, "Hey, what if the black uh, front was uh, was available?" And and I don't know. Well. Yeah, the black would make sense, but I mean, like if you, I, I thought maybe people, people were going to ask for a red for a red uh, one, front, yeah. but that would have throw your whole color perception off. Like, yeah, if you had a color uh, like a red front. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen I'm a look, render. I'm that, looking at but, some of the picture, the photographs of of the device or the the renderings of it, and I think it looks pretty good with the white. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I've seen renderings of one with the red front, and it doesn't look quite as nice. I think it's a little too much in your face. Mm-hmm. I like the way you can see the red around the border. Right, yeah. 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 Well, Carol's I, biggest criticism is that, that we'll have to get her a life-proof case, which, you know, thankfully they have a clear back, so she'll be able to see the red through the back there. But uh, And and I explained to her that, that uh, it, it is waterproof, so she'll be able to muck around with the granddaughter and the dog and what have you. The, the, the scary thing is whether she'll drop it or not, but... Her her phone ends up in the in snowbanks and you know going down the hill in toboggans with the grandchildren and all kinds of crazy things like that. So it needs uh, needs protection. Yeah. <laughs> so along those lines, uh, quick uh, update: How are your jet black or was that what they were called? Jet black, gl- the glossy one. Right. Yeah. Uh, how are those holding up after? I don't know. I six only months? I bought the matte black ones at at, uh, oh. at work. I didn't buy the the, the shiny one. When I saw yeah, them, I, I saw one black. in the store, and it was like you know, it had been handled, and it was just covered yeah, it was in really you know, oil, and yeah. Yep. So did you get a jet black uh, Jaime? No, mine is mine is the silver. I've been going silver, silver. for a while. Uh, yeah. The silver yep. has a white front, right? It does. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. So. so uh, Following up on the the last part of Greg's question, like, does the new color option suggest anything about iPhone iPhone eight news or timing? Thoughts on that? No, I'm gonna go with no. I think I think there might be an. Uh, will there be an eight be announced at WWDC? Do you think? I seriously, I seriously doubt it. I I would expect it would be September, like the they have been doing for several right, years. So. Right. Not to say it can't change. They've they've changed their minds a couple times uh, for products. Well, the actual um, anniversary is July, right? Didn't the iPhone, the first iPhone, come out in, into market in July? It was announced at WWDC in two thousand seven, right? So yeah, no, I remember June. buying stock. We bought our stock the day before it came out. Our first stock, or set of Apple stock, I think it was on sometime in July. Mm. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think 
timing would necessarily change, you know, for this particular um, product red thing. Um, I think the color gets kind of interesting um, because they, we have seen them expand out to different colors, like uh, the jet black, if you call that a variation of the map, and rose gold and and gold gold, I guess, yellow gold. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. I, I'd like to see more colors the way that the iPods came out in all these different colors. Um, it seems like if they came out with a red iPhone eight, it would kind of kill the momentum that you're trying to build and the awareness <laughs> you're trying to build with product red. So right. I, I kind of feel like red is, is out of the, the running, but hopefully, uh, purple rain, which is my color that I'd like them to do. And I would absolutely <laughs> buy would become available. Still holding out hope. So just get a clear yeah. blue, clear blue case and put it on your iPhone on the red one, and it'll make it purple. <laughs> and, and you know, regarding whether they announce it at WWC, I, I kind of think they won't because I it, this is a big deal. It's tenth anniversary. It's it's supposed to be a super duper phone. I, I think they'll they'll have a big event about it. You know, they'll make a big deal about it. Right, it'll have its right. own special event, and it won't be at WWDC uh, unless they somehow tie it into the grand opening of the the new building which mm. may happen at wdc right. i don't know why they why would they do that though i don't know we'll come up with a round iphone yeah <laughs> just, <laughs> a, got, I, just a hockey puck like that uh with a big hole in the middle right, <laughs> right. you never know which way is up right it'll, yeah. be, it'll have a rotary dial on the front of it yeah <laughs> with the whole i love that mark the, the hole in the middle that's how it's see-through right that's yeah. <laughs> it's not augmented reality it's reality reality <laughs> yeah exactly right. well it's mixed mixed reality right <laughs> yeah. um, have you guys seen that that uh there's an iphone 7 the company has is retrofitting iphone 7s with uh the old beige plastic case with the oh, really? uh, ferals on the side and, and a rainbow mm-hmm. colored um, uh, apple. And it's it's ridiculously priced. It's like $1,800 or some crazy amount of money. Wow. It's, Does I it come with even... a big clunky keyboard? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That'd be funny. Yeah, but I don't know. But should, the style looks pretty 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 interesting it, it, i definitely dig the the retro vibe on that one yeah um the price is a little high but they're basically taking the dang phone apart and putting it back together for you uh, probably violating all sorts of warranties so i can imagine that's where a lot of the price comes from so are, are we so is the idea you send your phone to them and they retrofit it is that how they're doing it that's I my understanding so. hmm. yeah th- there's been companies that have done like um anodization of of the metal since at least the iPhone five that I remember people getting kind of nifty, cool colors, um, on there. And I right, assume right. this is an extension of that. Hmm. So what's the next product they announced there, honey? Um, rolling along with iPhone, they, they updated the iPhone SE as we kind of expected. They now have uh, 32 gig and 128 gig models replacing the 16 and 64 respectively at 399 and 499 us respectively. So hmm. that has the uh, the iPhone 5S body, but with the iPhone 6S internals inside of it. So kind of a little of a hot rod. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if that's uh, like a bummer for folks who are, you know, there's a contingent of, of folks who are really into the smaller iPhone size. Um, if they're doing this sort of thing, I kind of don't think that we'll see a new SE, you know, with like 7 and 7 plus internals inside of it. And certainly not iPhone 8 internals. So uh, I feel like if you uh, are sort of stuck on the smaller um, body frame, you're always going to be lagging behind the latest and greatest there. True. Well, they've got they've got six months. If they if they release the eight in September, they could do an SE update with the seven 
internals. It'll keep it one generation back. Hmm. It, it, it is six months away still, so it's not un, it's not impossible. Hmm. That's a good point. They must have shrunk the boards down and stuff to make them fit in there, right? Probably, has, yeah. Yeah, they must do something. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting, yeah. they're comparing it on the Verge article that you've got posted here, and we'll put it in the show notes that um, the difference is, you know, a lower quality camera that most people don't care about has no water resistance and do- doesn't have 3D touch either. So, no peak and pop for those people on the SEs. Does have Touch ID though. Yeah. So it, it's kind of a mixed bag there, but. Um, they are very affordable, um, considering that you know six forty nine is almost certainly going to be the base model price for your right, thirty two right. gig iPhone eight. So six forty nine, three ninety nine. Uh, I mean, that's that's a huge. Uh, you could buy two of them, and have a backup one. You, you can. Who, right. who, who needs it to be waterproof? I can drop one in the swimming pool and be totally fine, and still able to keep on going. Well, if you get Apple Care Plus, you're allowed to drop it in the, in the pool at least once. Um, so is this is this a full year for the SE? Has that been a full year, or has it been eighteen months, or something, or how long has that been for the SE? It's yeah. been on a couple of years by now, hasn't it? Yeah. So remember, we were all speculating on whether it would be a lasting thing, but I guess clearly the fact that they brought out an upgrade to it, it must be a, a hot selling item, right? So holding its own, in other words, right? Right. See, it was released uh, March thirty first, twenty sixteen. So it's been about a year. Uh, mm. That that's that's all. Wow, it seems like longer. Time has flown by. Hmm. Interesting stuff. Yeah. So next we have, I mean, who cares? Watch bands. I didn't even look at this. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was on the list because it was on the, the set of things that they updated. If you go to uh, apple.com, uh, it, it's not much. It's pretty much um, spring colored uh, bands. So your fluorolastomer now comes in Easter appropriate colors, uh, pastels, largely. Um, they came up with new sport bands. Uh, woven nylon, which uh, I guess some folks have said is really comfortable. So uh, I'm thinking of picking up probably not one of these because I didn't like any of these colors personally, but maybe an uh, alternative color uh, woven nylon. Uh, they also came out with the Hermes leather double buckle, Ooh. which yeah. looks pretty nice. But when I looked at the store, it says only available for 38 millimeter, which is kind of a bummer. Um, hmm. I wasn't going to buy that one anyway, so I'm going to check Amazon to see if there's a knockoff for the 42 millimeter at $30. Um, and notably the Nike bands themselves became available rather than being part of the, uh, was it like the Nike sport watch? I forget what they, they called that particular model. Um, this would be the one with the, the floor elastomer band, but it has, uh, breathable holes. So if you're like me and you get kind of sweaty by the end of the day on your, on your floor elastomer, uh, watch band, uh, this might be for you. Mm-hmm. Possibly not if you're the kind of person who has that uh, that phobia where you're afraid of like dots. I've, I've heard comments from people <laughs> online that it kind of bothers what? them. What? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I could kind of see that. Like, uh, your mileage may vary, so be careful with that one. What, what are they afraid, afraid of getting dots? a selective suntan or something? No, <laughs> no. Have, have you seen? It's like, a, oh, I'm going to have to look this up, and we'll put it in the show notes. It's like where people have a. A phobia, like a natural aversion to um, to a bunch of holes in a very like dense huh. pattern, and it's apparently, as far as we know, we think it's based on the idea that like a lot of things in nature that have those kind of holes uh-huh. are poisonous or dangerous in some sort of way. Huh? Yeah, or have like rotted, right? Like, like, yeah, like you know, dead bodies with maggots stuff, yeah. coming out of right. that sort of thing. Oh, uh, tripophobic. I just looked it up. Fear of holes. Tripophobic. Tripophobic. Hmm. Yeah. 
And my problem with these is that they're, they're not long enough, right? I need them to be like, I think the, the fluoroelastomer bands are, I think, half a millimeter, which is, let's say, three-eighths of an inch maybe um, longer than um, than the, uh, like the leather bands or the, the um, nylon bands. So, And I'm at the second last notch on my watch, right, So for comfort. Mm-hmm. But it fits, though, right? Like, it, it's not as if you had to go get one of those... Um, you know, like the airline seat belts, where they they have the extender <laughs> that extends it out. That's what I mean, though. I, I think that I think like I, when when I tried the Milanese loop, it just I couldn't even get it over my wrist. Like my hand was just I don't know. I don't have gigantic hands either, so I don't un- understand. Like, well, I mean, the earbuds you, fit in my ears, but <laughs> these stuff. Well, right? if you look at Apple's site, they do sell a link kit for like forty nine dollars oh, US. Yeah, for, for that. So you could add one to two, maybe three or four links, depending on how much uh, it would take to that one, but not to the, not to the nylon band or the Melanie's loop or the, you know, I'm hoping maybe, maybe the knockoffs at uh, Amazon are the way to go. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think so. Like we used to have to get the hot nail and you know, when you had the, the belt and you had to put a new hole and you'd heat up a nail on the stove and drive it through. <laughs> drive it through the leather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you discover there's punches for that. So then there's, and there's a new app coming up, but it's not out yet, I think. That's right. It will be available in April, and that is the Clips app that we're talking about. This is um, a photo and video capture app. And this is what a lot of people were talking about uh, in the rumor mill. It was like, oh, Apple's doing this social networky thing. And it turns out it's not at all a social network. It's really more of like a fancy camera app, if you think about it. Um, it does live titles where it will... Uh, add text using voice like while you're talking so kind of like a live subtitle mm-hmm. and apparently does that in 36 different languages which is pretty cool to see that coming out of the the box um it does uh filters which you know kind of most camera things do nowadays uh post instagram world does overlays with you know stickers all sorts of things that, that people love to do uh thank you facebook for that one um does not have the instagram or snapchat style scribbling which uh it's kind of a weird omission, uh, as, as pointed out here in the article. You can scribble on an Apple Watch, but you can't scribble on your ginormous 7 Plus. Um, All right, yeah. Easy sharing to Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Uh, and, of course, the Messages app, which apparently will give you smart suggestions where, based on the faces that it finds in the video, if it finds a match in your contact list, it will suggest that as the person that you should share with, which... I think it's pretty handy. And and given the way that Apple does its differential uh, privacy stuff, like it's not as if they have like your face sitting on a server somewhere. It was a face that matched what was locally on your device, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, Apparently single clips can be up to 30 minutes long with the final video being 60 minutes long. Um, They're uh, saved locally. Uh, Of course, it's not like this is going into a web service or anything. And, uh, the final thing that I'd add here is that apparently you can add iTunes music tracks to this, which I'm a little curious how that works. I definitely want to try that part out, uh, add some you know, interesting music uh, to the background of a video, let's say. Yeah, what about licensing? Hmm. Yeah, they, well, I mean, presumably they they must confer some sort of ability for you to do that. Otherwise, they, they'd be like an accessory to uh yeah you know, like ip violations in that for the case right so i can see this right now it's not going to be available in canada because of crtc versus <laughs> socan and <laughs> oh that's so difficult yeah uh, <laughs> you could always switch to the uh the u.s app store right and and then you'll be fine yeah maybe yeah 
Yeah. Have you not seen that when you switch when you switch countries? There's this dire warning from Apple when when the iPad first came out. You know, we all had to run across the border and get our iPads for because for those of us who couldn't wait six months, right? Uh, we were standing in the store on the club. I'm not going to name the the city, but you know, the guys at Apple were helping us just you know put an address in American address in and, and uh, set it up. Um, so I hear I wasn't actually there, but um, but we were using American iTunes accounts, and then about six months later, or a few months later, Apple started putting this big warning up saying, are you really from the United States? Because if you're not really from the United States and you're doing this, you're bad people, and <laughs> you know, you're they're going to get you kind of thing, right? Mm. So, yeah, so every time we switch stores and try and purchase something from the U.S. store, it, uh, the uh, App Store yells at us, right? So they must, that, you know, use location, right, services. That, that reminds me a little bit of um, – so, Tim, you, you know what I'm talking about. But there used to be these things called records that you could buy, and they were these – Yeah, no, no, they're, they're coming back thing. in. They're coming back in. Yeah, that's true. They're, they are coming back in, yeah. But, but uh, they used to put a lot of times on the album cover and the artwork, they'd put this warning saying uh, – Copying this record will damage your equipment. Really? Yeah, you never saw anything like that. Yeah, playing well, a, co- sure I have. a copied sure I have. version yeah, yeah. Yeah. could will, will destroy your your equipment. And, and and I guess enough people must have believed it that 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 it uh, had some effect. I mean, wow. obviously it didn't really do that, but they but they used to do they used to put that on there a lot. It kind of reminds me of that they can't really can't really stop you, but they try to scare you a little bit. Well, I don't know if you remember back in, in the classic Mac days, there was a CD by Celine Dion published by Sony that had a bit of software on it that prevented you from copying the, the disc. Mm. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Until somebody figured their way around yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The, the infamous uh, black Sharpie that you could use to oh, put yeah. the little ring around and apparently it, it defeated that mechanism. Oh, really? On the edge, you mean? Yeah. I don't know mm. if it was the Celine Dion one, but I do remember Sony's name being involved. So, right, right. Pretty sure it's pretty close. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, so going back to the Clips app, I've, I've got a little minor conspiracy theory for you about, about that. So, if you remember uh, when the WWDC announcement came out, there was a lot of speculation about a social network. And Jaime, you were saying that people are still speculating, right. uh, mm-hmm. partly because of the you know the picture of all the people kind of hanging out there. Uh, so what if this? What about this? So when you put out a new social network, the biggest problem always is what they call the empty room syndrome, right? Nobody wants to be the first person on a social network because really? it looks like nothing's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people show up and there's nobody there. There's nothing to see. And they, they just kind of leave. It's only after there's enough critical mass that you get enough people on there uh, doing stuff that it makes it compelling and interesting. So you want to stick around and, and do stuff. So what if this clips app is while you're posting to other social networks apple is kind of just keeping a copy of it around in you know in icloud somewhere or something like that so when Mm. this new social network comes out it'll be fully populated with everything that you and all your friends have been doing through the clips app instant Mm. uh non-empty room syndrome just a theory yeah i think the the only way i would modify that one given their their privacy stance yep is that it probably wouldn't work exactly like that. Like they're intercepting it. If I were to guess, it would probably work based off of the um, photos, the iCloud photos integration we talked about where, you know, you're backing it up for your own purposes. Yep. And now they can just flip a switch in the future and be like, yo, do you want to import all of these things from well, the photos? Well, you're right. Yeah, that thing? would probably be the implementation. Yeah, they'd probably, when you when you first sign up for the social network, they'd probably say, hey, do you want to import all your all your clips? 
And if you say yes, then yeah, they're all there. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Instantaneously. Cause it's just, you know, metadata changes and linkages they'd have to do rather than, um, you know, holding on to these things just in case it's like, well, assuming that a lot of people use the, the photo stream to back up their stuff. Uh, why not? Yeah. 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 I, I could see that. Um, as far as near term stuff, I, I've seen folks talking about this particular app and this particular announcement, and they seem to get stuck on the, like, it looks like a social network, which, I mean, I, I, I sort of agree in, in some respects that if you, if you look at this and you look at Instagram or you look at Snapchat in particular, they, they, they look a lot alike, right? You can, you can yep. kind of squint your eyes and be like, yeah, it looks kind of like, like that. But I think it's worth pointing out in a, a small little segue here that like Snapchat itself is trying to sort of divorce itself from being considered, um, a social network per se as a company, um, as evidence by the fact that they, uh, sort of formally changed their name to snap, uh, not Snapchat, which is their, their particular app. And in their IPO papers, they said like, we considered ourselves basically a camera company that, you know, you can do all these cool, interesting things with our different lenses that put, you know, funny faces on the screen or put makeup on you or do whatever. And that happens to be something you can output to a social network, which we own one. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's probably a better way of, of looking at this at least now, right? Like uh, the speculation we just talked about, notwithstanding that is certainly possible. And I think would be brilliant as a, as a way to kickstart things for the time being. Um, it's not so much that this is a social, you know, this looks like a social network It's like, well, no, this looks like a feature from existing social networks is, is probably, I think a better way of putting it. Like, I mean, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's say they added like the weird funny faces thing where, you know, it turns your face to look like a puppy dog or something like that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's Snapchat. It, it's more like the big feature that people love Snapchat and why they're so invested in, in continuing to put stuff on that network. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my first thought on this I, thing was that, that are they trying to go after what Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat are doing with these things? Like even the, the comic book filter there looks like that, pr uh, Prisma app that come, came out um, six months ago where, you know, you could use filters to make your pictures look, you know, artistic. Um, do you think Apple is trying to, trying to get into that market that maybe they feel is uh, slipping away from them? It's a very lucrative market. It makes a lot of money. I mean, look at look at Snapchat they, or, or Snap, rather, right? They just uh, went public and, well, they haven't, they haven't been doing so well in the stock market yeah, they since dip, they went yeah. public. But mm -hmm. considering they've never turned a profit and they're losing something like half a billion dollars a year uh they still got something like a 30 30 billion dollar valuation when they went public so that's a big chunk of change apple is in a different position with the same product they'd be making money off that so you know why not why wouldn't they want to be in this market yeah i mean you you could have in-app purchase type stuff for packs of filters and lenses and all sorts of yeah. things so kind of coming well, at it from or, a or different perspective I mean, than yeah. advertising, maybe, but it, it's kind of less, less aligned with the way they, they run their business. Apple, um, that's, that's very true. Yeah. Apple, Apple's never been yeah. particularly good at advertising. It's true. But <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, they're putting ads in the app store now. So maybe, maybe things are changing a little bit. Are they putting ads in the app store? Yeah. Well, so, uh, you're, well, uh, ads for ones? apps. Yeah, the ones right. the ones that right. people can buy, right? The yeah. developers yep. can buy. Yep. Those search ads are called, right? Indeed. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, 
What can you do? So you guys mentioned WWDC a couple of times. I just wanted to point out for those of you who listen to the show on the weekend that the lottery starts on Monday. So do we know what the parameters behind that is? It starts Monday. Is it going to be like three days before they start announcing people are going to pull out of the hat? Or do we have any idea? I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember the announcement saying exactly how long it would go, but I would I would hope it'd be at least to the end of that that week so that people have enough time to say, okay, uh, you know, manager and or managers, uh, can I get the approval to go do this, right, please, right. sort of thing, right? Like that can, I think I've advised people to go do that ahead of time because it's better to have the approval and then decide you don't want to go than it is, you know, the other way. Um, but, but, you know, I don't think they would just, uh, oh, lottery's open for uh, 20 minutes. Okay, bye. Where have made it yeah. in? <laughs> we'll yeah. choose from there. <laughs> yeah. I'm just looking at a page here. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at the page, too. I'm looking at a different one, not an Apple one, but... Um, I'm looking at a Macworld one. It just says March 27th at 10 a.m., which is uh, Pacific Day- Daylight Time, so... Um, hmm. Yeah, because usually it started on a Friday, and you had Friday, Saturday, Sunday to... to and then Monday, Monday morning, the bad news would start flowing out to people's email addresses, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about WWDC 2017 at the San Jose McHenry Center, which happens uh, the first week of June, I believe, right? The 5th to the 9th, I think. Yeah. So start your engines. The real question is whether Mark's going to open his place up as an Airbnb and use, <laughs> that, as way, <laughs> use that as a way to fund stuff. Perhaps yeah, he's going, to, going down to the lumberyard store to get some to make some bunk beds and really yeah, that's right, right. right. So. And then I'll just go on vacation. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You leave Greg to manage the place. Yeah, <laughs> I'll go on vacation and watch the videos. <laughs> right. All right. So we have some. So what else we, we could talk about here? Um, GitHub, I mean. Yeah, just at least briefly, because they they came out with this, um, what they're calling the balanced employee IP agreement, as a very fancy way of saying that, uh, contrary to a lot of the terms that you'll see in employment agreements that um, essentially say, hey, anything that you create uh, at the minimum with uh, company knowledge and company property, um, you know, is considered property of the company. Uh, let's say like you, you built your, your award-winning app, but you used your company laptop, let, let that case, right. Uh, or in some other cases, the, uh, the very fact that you are employed, they're like, look, we're giving you this particular salary. And as part of that, we're saying, uh, you're assigning to us all IP rights for anything you create, uh, during the time of your employment, even if it's not, mm. uh, strictly during company time, nor strictly during, um, our on company property. Or, or with company property. Um, I believe the state of California is rather restrictive in this already to begin with. Uh, and I think that varies a little bit. Um, but that's not necessarily the case for, for other places in the United States or outside uh, internationally. Uh, GitHub is taking a, a quite different aspect here where they're saying, um, well, is, basically, as long as it uh, doesn't um, relate to an existing or prospective company product or service, uh, or was being developed for use by the company, or so on and so forth. Um, it's pretty much yours to go with. Uh, they're even saying like, uh, if you happen to do it while you were using company property, like their laptop and stuff, that's a okay. You know, GitHub does what GitHub does, and if you want to make the next award-winning cooking app 
go have at it. They're, they're not in that business. So no worries about that. Um, they, they've opened this up, uh, open source, uh, so that folks can sort of use it as, as a model. And I think they're hoping a lot that a lot of other companies will, will do this. And I think I have to give them some kudos for this because, um, while I understand, you know, the, the two's perspective as to why employers put the particular terms that I just described in them, um, if you look at it more optimistically, it's because uh, it makes it very, very clear that there aren't any weird gray legal areas between, well, should this be company property or not? And you end up not having to fight for stuff. Uh, more cynically, you could say, well, it's kind of because they know that uh, innovation is a very nice, lucrative thing. And if you do come up with the great next social network, uh, they want a piece of that action. Um, this is kind of contrary to either one of those philosophies, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. No, I think this is great. I mean, it's the the old way of doing things was was pretty much all all the reasons that you, that you said, Jaime. But I think it's mostly because they can they can get away with it. Uh, in the old days, they could, and and uh, you know they they almost they almost owned the employees in some sense, and then they could they could they could force you to. To agree with one of those things, but but the the day things have changed. You know, people working on a company premises doesn't necessarily mean anything anymore because half the time people work at home, right? And and so you know, so if you're working at home and you and you develop something when you're officially on company time, you know, what are the rules about that, right? And there's all sorts of weird gray areas now with with flex time and 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 uh, and all these different types of work situations. So. So it doesn't really make sense for for the old rules to apply anymore. So I, I think this is great. A very forward thinking of, of GitHub. I like it. Mm-hmm. Tim, the Canadian perspective, because I'm less familiar with how things tend to be over there. Yeah, I think it depends on the on the employer. Like, um, I, and it may be the same with you guys. If you walk into a job and you sit down at your computer and you start working away, and then six months later your boss comes to you and says, "Oh, I want you to sign this this confidentiality agreement or whatever," um, I know from speaking to lawyers before that that's not enforceable because you weren't that wasn't a condition of your employment. However, if you do, uh, if that is part of your initial signing up. Um, that you have to sign away whatever rights. I think um, I, whenever I signed contracts when I was you know, working for my for my own company or working on projects with people, I always spent the $300 or whatever it was to have a lawyer look at it just to make sure it was covered. But I think when you're working for um, a company, if you're going to do things on the side or after hours or whatever, um, that probably is a conversation you should have or it should be spelt out in the in the agreement, but uh, again, we're not lawyers in this show, as we say, right? Right. Um, but I, we're not sort of. There, there are different, different uh, differences in um, what was it used to call it, Mark? Where you're, I think you're built work for hire or something like that. Um, at at will. Is that what you're talking about? No. I th- well, like for instance, I think if if uh, I think maybe this has to do with how you're. Uh, yeah, who has rights to whatever? Like, if you're if if we hire an American contractor to work for us, to we isn't there something about um, uh, there's a, there's a rule you guys had where I think it was like um, work for hire or, or how you're like you're hired to perform work for us, not mm-hmm. um, you know, so you sur- kind of surrender the rights to anything that you write for us. But I think in Canada, it depends on whatever whatever um, contract you have. I think most cases the IP belongs to the employer 
uh, if it's spelled out in, right. a, in, a, in, a, in an agreement. But um, I think that, and again, don't quote me on this, people, but um, you need to talk to a lawyer. But I do believe that if there isn't something, if there isn't an, a, a, um, a restrictive covenant, it's called in legal terms, um, for your work, your when you're working for somebody else, um, you as the developer own the rights to that, you know. Um, that's sort of um, how we've always sort of operated, or at least how I understand it. Um, you know, so I was when I was always careful to make sure that you know we we had a I have a standard agreement that I share with people that says you know we're kind of equally disclosing things to each other and you know we protect each other's butts and whatever. <clears throat> but um, yeah, I think I think any creative work in Canada is seen to belong to the person who created it as opposed to the company that's paying a salary. So. That's kind of so. In most cases, I think that you know, these days, I think most companies are savvy enough to know that they need to get an agreement in front of an employee before they start working. Yeah, the the work for hire thing brings to my mind the fact that there are probably still major comic book characters whose specific rights are still being battled over to this day. Uh, probably with the heirs of uh, some of the original comic book writers and artists who are trying to say, hey, no, I wasn't hired as work for hire. Uh, I own this character. And the company saying, no, no, no. At the time that you signed this, this is what you were doing. And as we talked about, we're not lawyers. Uh, your mileage may vary. Go go, go get some legal counsel if you're, you're thinking of going this route. One of my uh, former employers, highest ranking guy, CEO or whatever, president, I think it was, was actually a lawyer. And um, he once said to me that a contract is just a piece of paper. So when you get in front of when you get in front of lawyers, that's how they kind of look at it. And I think the the idea is that um, you know they can get you know they can they can argue things in court. You know they can drag it up forever. I had another lawyer once say to me that uh, the more restrictive covenants you sign, the less you know the, the harder it is to get on with life later on. Um, so he kind of he wasn't sort of saying don't sign them. He was sort of saying don't sign too many of them. And but the the other thing too is uh, you know I've worked for people before where you know there was a question that could have been argued in court but it came down to um, who has the deepest pockets right so um, that's why people have to be you have to be careful when you take on work and this question of who owns the IP because at the end of the day it's the one who can afford to stay in court the longest that's going to win that's my opinion so my um, I workflow automation. Software. They won a um, Apple Design Award Apple Design in 20, 2015. You were there for that one, weren't you? I was. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they. Came so, what's up, the big news for them? Um, the big news for them is they were recently, and I mean recently, like I, we had to add this to the show notes uh, at the very last minute because it happened like an hour before recording. Uh, they were acquired by Apple. You might remember them. Uh, we've been talking about them this entire podcast. Um, yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting and um, exciting and a little odd in some ways, right? So, um, you know, kudos to them, to them and the team that uh, you know that the workflow app is something that a lot of folks use as a way to have uh, automation on iOS. Um, and in fact, I think this comes as a little bit of a surprise because uh, there was a lot of consternation when Sal—I forget his last name—I apologize. Uh, but the the head of of automation or automator mm. perhaps automation tools. Yeah, Mac, uh, Mac. Yep, yep. Yeah, Mac Mac tools uh, for that over at Apple was uh, let go because they decided they didn't need his position anymore. Um, oh, they got rid of him. Oh, really? Yeah, mm. he was he was let go. They 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 decided they didn't want that, and and people were concerned about like, well, 
hold on, this automation tool stuff is pretty handy. And what does that mean for people who want more than uh, basic consumption for their devices? Uh, particularly um, bad that this came, that, that news came out during the time that we were, you know, really heavily wondering what the heck is going on for pros, right? Uh, th- this seems kind of counter to that. Um, now this news seems counter to that bad news. So I don't know, uh, maybe people are feeling a little happier about um, the fate of automation on, on Apple platforms and on iOS in particular, where um, I think there's a strong need for something like workflow where, uh, yes, you could do some of the things that uh, that workflow does, um, you know, by hand, but it would be painful, right? And, and this gets you about as close as you could possibly get in a iOS context to having sort of batch scripting of things like, you know, grab the, the next five events for what I'm dealing with or take these files, rename them and shove them onto, you know, my favorite social network. So yeah, <laughs> it's exciting to see that, that they're, they're pulling this in. Apparently the app is going to stay in the app store. Uh, it's unclear to me for precisely how long. Um, notable that uh, the Siri app, when that got acquired, didn't stay on for very long, I don't think. Um, likewise, oh, when, really? Apple, hmm. when Apple acquired Burstly for test flight, uh, test flight didn't stay up as a separate service for very long and got very quickly incorporated into to Apple's ecosystem. So we'll see what ends up happening here. And as was pointed out by, I think, Curtis Herbert, uh, the maker of Slopes, uh, it's kind of interesting that this is around the same time of year that uh, test flight was acquired. So keep your eyes out for WWDC and see if they mm. incorporate this at some level or at least talk about it. Right. So the real-time follow-up is Sal Sagoyan is the name you were looking for. He's oh, the author you. of the AppleScript 123, and I think he ran a website called macautomation.com or .org. Yeah. The picture on the cover of that book looks kind of like you, Tim. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mike. <laughs> well, that's, no, it's not an insult. <laughs> no, Sal's, a, Sal's an interesting character. I saw him speak once at, uh, at an Apple conference, Apple session. Uh, yeah, he, didn't, he didn't, uh, didn't hold back. He was pretty confident in his position at Apple, which is why I'm surprised to see. Yeah. Is that his picture on the cover? Yeah, that's him. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I used to bump into him at, um, at, uh, WWC and stuff like that. Yeah. He's one of the old guard. He was at Apple when Steve Jobs returned. So, so back in the nineties, right? The Apple, Apple script guy, basically. So that's interesting about, uh, workflow. Hmm. So have you ever used that app, Jaime? I tried to get into it initially, and and when I say initially, I mean probably very early on. And at the time, I didn't think it would sort of meet my needs. Um, But since then, they've added a lot of enhancements, particularly over the last six months, that made it a lot more like batch scripting where you had uh, Mm. variables and and sort of like subroutines where you could have workflows that incorporated other sub-workflows that uh, I think if I were to go back to it now, I'd probably be a lot more impressed. I've listened to um, Federico Vitici from, oh my gosh, which one of the many podcasts I listen to is on Relay.fm. I apologize for getting it wrong at the moment. Um, but hearing what he does with it is, uh, it seems a little insane as to how far he's going towards making the iPad his main device. But it sort of opens my eyes to, oh, there's some cool possibilities there that would certainly make my life a little bit easier trying to do things. Um on a sort of limited input touchscreen device. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought this was possible, but I'll have to check it out. I'd seen the app before, but obviously the icon on the app store and people's home screens and stuff like that, but uh, never really tried it out. Cool. Is that it? I think so. 
that's it. That's it. That's all. Are you there yet? Okay. So it's the time for Picorama. So my pick comes to me by way of my uh, grandson, Xavier, who's dying to be on this podcast, by the way. And, uh, oh, I just hit play on it. And um, so one of his favorite guys that he follows on YouTube, because he likes to come here and take out my packed up uh, old Macs and stuff like that and play with them. But um, is this guy who calls himself the 8-Bit Guy. He's called something else, and I'm not sure what his name is now that I think about it. But uh, it's an interesting video that he posted uh, last week, which is called uh, The Basics of BASIC, the programming language of the 1980s. And uh, I think, Mark, you did some time in BASIC, I think, right? Oh, I sure did, yeah. That was the first language I ever learned. Yeah, and of course, if you had a Commodore 64, you would have, you know, you'd be familiar with load. Uh, I think it was dollar sign comma eight, uh, which the... Uh, the secret thing to get a game loaded on the Commodore. I didn't really learn BASIC that much, but I have uh, I have a couple of Apple IIs, which, of course, have the Apple BASIC burned onto the ROM. So if you don't put a floppy disk in, it starts up in BASIC. Um, and back, uh, we just uh, spoke to uh, uh, Don Melton on Roundabout. Oops, spoiler. Uh, and he was telling us about uh, his early days of coding as well, so using BASIC as well. So so if you're interested in BASIC, it's, it's uh, uh, this gentleman here... Um, I have to get his name. It doesn't say anywhere on your... Um, but uh, he spe- he has a number of people talking about the you know history of BASIC and how it worked and uh, goes through the different machines that would have worked worked with it, how it worked on a Commodore, how it worked on an Apple II, and various... And the sun- Atari 800, which is my first computer. Yeah? Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting stuff. If you're into retro, he does a lot of, uh, you know, take-aparts. Uh, people give him... Um, give him uh, older max and he uh cleans him up and stuff like that so it's an interesting dude what is his name what is your name let me let me play he's just the 8-bit guy oh, of course he's got the 8-bit music as a theme song right yeah he has no name his name is just the 8-bit guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah he does all kinds of interesting uh take aparts and talks about old zip drives and stuff so if you're into if you're for the kids i guess it's interesting stuff because it's all that retro you know grandparent grand grumpy grandpa kind of stuff right so anyway that's it that's my pick yeah i think um you're blowing your grandchildren's minds by you know right it's like oh what do they want to do oh they want to do this arduino or raspberry pi project and they can just you know go uh clone a github project somewhere and then it's all there for them ready to roll I think you could show him like, look, here was this massive book that you had to hand type and you had to pray that there wasn't a typo somewhere in there that would have destroyed right, the, entire, right. yeah. <laughs> the entire process. <laughs> oh yeah. Back in, back in the early days, the, so with, when you programmed in basic, you could, you could still do some assembly language programming from basic. So you could call uh rabbit really machine language um, code from, from your basic. So a lot of times when you, would type in programs. You'd like get a program from a magazine, say, and want to type it in. But the machine language part was just an enormous string of hex code that you'd have to type in. And sometimes it would be just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines of hexadecimal code that you'd just have to type. And you'd have to get it all right, because if you got one character off, it would just crash, of course. So uh, that was that was the the worst thing ever having to type that in. It was one thing to type in all the basic code, and and you could you could reasonably do that that well because it was it was text, right? It was a language, and it, you get you had to have the source code, and you could 
you know you can see where it went wrong but with with the with these machine language uh function calls it would just there's just, just no way to know you know it's just this enormous list of just uh letters and numbers that have no meaning at all to to the human eye and you'd have to type those in as well and then back in those days if you want like so if you wrote a program and you wanted to save it to a floppy disk you had to load another program to write the floppy right and format it and things like that. Is that how? Oh, oh that, that's if you had a floppy disk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, Mr. Fancy. My first fans computer. I, I had a tape drive. I had a cassette drive. It would save. It would save the, the the program or whatever the data to the cassette drive using the same kind of. Well, people might not even know what this is, but but back in the early days of modems, when you actually had dial-up modems, right? Yeah, it would convert the data to an audio signal and send it a, send it across. And that's what those that was those weird you know screeching noises that you would hear when you had those dial-up modems. So yeah, it would use the same kind of technology to save the data as analog sounds to a cassette tape. So that modular Crazy demodularization stuff. would that would that um, would that ever screw up like uh, like a bad floppy disk would like? Oh yeah, well because it's an it's an audio signal, right? So if there's any kind of glitch on the tape on the cassette tape, your program is gone. Because you just have this one, you know, this one thing that it couldn't understand. It couldn't. Right, yeah. uh, it couldn't read. Yeah, yeah. They would get screwed up a lot. Hmm. Floppy disks were way more reliable than cassette drives. But but still, like when you had a floppy, you had to load a program to write the floppy, right? Like you, like as you're writing your mem- your program into memory, right? Isn't that right? Like when you're uh, whatever you're typing into the screen. Yeah. And then how do you? How would you save that to a floppy disk? Was there like something built into Basic to do that, or? Well, it would depend. Um, on the on the Atari, it had something called DOS. Believe it or not. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, this is this is before Microsoft DOS. Uh, DOS stood for Disk Operating System, <laughs> and uh, and it was a program you would run. Yeah, like you said, it was a program you would run with a with a list of options, and one op, you know option number one or whatever was load load a file from from the disk. Option number two, save a file to the disk, and you'd actually have to. You'd get this screen that would pop up with this list of, of, of options with a number, and you'd type the number of the thing you wanted to do. Right. It was, right. yeah, it was pretty wild stuff back mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, when you think about, like, you know, now you just, you know, 3D touch on something or, or control yeah. click on it, hit share, and automatically copies it into an, an email or a Twitter post and, you know, formats a Twitter post for you, puts an image on it, sends it up to the World Wide Web. Like, it's kind of crazy now when you think about. How much work? I mean, I mean, I got into Mac when it was uh, Mac. Even Mac was pretty rudimentary when uh, when you just had the Finder to work with, right? So right, right. You know, you could you could, had to go back to the Finder to, to create a folder and then rename the folder and change the name of the file and go back to your application and work with the file. And it was uh, it was not quite as uh, uh, point and clicky as it is now, right? So yeah, yeah. And Basic was even basicer. Basic was pretty basic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did you do Pascal and and all that kind of stuff as well, or I did a little bit of Pascal. I did assembly language in sixty five hundred two, which was uh, which was kind of an interesting thing because it was a very sixty five hundred two was the was the microprocessor that right. the Apple II and the Atari all used. So it was a it was a very simple uh, language. Um, it had essentially three memory locations that you had access to. Not memory locations, but registers. So you can only have three variables variables at a time, uh, which is which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Uh, and then um, 
I did a little bit of Pascal, not a whole lot. That, then I did C. I did C in high school. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then went from there. Yeah, it even points out in, in this uh, video when you watch it, if you're, if you're into Easter eggs and stuff like that, the uh, Futurama TV show has a lot of Easter eggs in it. Like, for instance, in Bender's home, he has Home Sweet Home on, on a placard on the wall, but it's it's 10 Home, 20 Sweet, and yeah. then, then 30 Go to 10. Right. <laughs> yeah, Basic was famous for the line numbers and the go-to statements. Right, and you had to leave space between the... You started with 10 and 20 because you might want to put something between, like, a 15 or something like that. That's right, yeah. You don't have to remember everything. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yep. So that's our basic lesson for the day. Yeah. All right, so Mr. Lopez, what do you got for us? Yeah, my my pick is an article by uh, Matt Reagan talking about uh, audible Xcode breakpoints. Um. In this article, he talks about uh, why they're useful. And if you're like me, you use them uh, as another alternative method for debugging. So the nice thing is that unlike uh, normal breakpoints that will stop the world and that you go inspect everything that's going on, um, I tend to use these when I'm trying to figure out if the sequence of events for something is correct, Uh, particularly when I don't want to be looking at a console. I want to be looking at the app and seeing how the app's UI is responding. So... You can have something like a ping, a pop, a knock, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, that can be pretty helpful so you know, oh, it should have gotten here first, and then this thing, and then this other thing, and I should hear this sequence in a particular order. Uh, I find it very useful for that sort of thing. We have something that's a little bit more fluid um, in nature. Um, in this article, he talks about uh, how to create them, which is pretty nice. It's uh, pretty easy, and you can see the, the different commands to do there. Uh, he notes the fact that there are default sounds, so you don't really have to go out and reach into the internet to go get some. But uh, if you do like doing that, uh, he has helpfully provided a um, a GitHub project that has some Xcode breakpoint sounds that he has created that are pretty hmm. pretty good. I tend to use the quack myself, just for reasons. Nothing in particular. The other ah, thing that's quack. pretty cool here is he shows the the three different options you have for adding those external sounds you can add them sort of directly to your library uh, slash sounds which makes them available everywhere or if you don't want to do that you can use the af play command which is pretty neat because you can play just about anything you want um and that's how i actually set it up myself i I put these in a particular documents directory and then uh, link to them from there or the speech breakpoints using the uh, say command which I don't think we've talked about on this show, but is definitely one of those things that you can sort of troll people with because it's uh, Apple's text-to-speech system, and it has all sorts of various uh, switches and options to change tempo and the uh, the gender and the voice style, like particular different accents and everything. So um, you might have a little bit of fun with that one too. Hmm. So kind of an all-encompassing, but very quick, easy, light read uh, for this blog post. Another uh, right. another tool on your tool belt. Yeah, we were talking about before the show, uh, Mark showed me how to do these. I think they're called conditional breakpoints, right, Mark? Um, back in the day. Uh, so you can also, actually, if you go to the breakpoint inspector, you can also find any breakpoint in your app, and you can uh, click on it, control click on it, and edit that breakpoint and add a sound to it. So the idea was I had a similar pro- problem that uh, something was do a startup, and you don't want to stop the... the um, the uh, app at a breakpoint in some cases, especially when you're dealing with timing things from servers and things like that. So you want to keep the program running. So you can, there's an option there to um, 
automatically continue after it hits the break point. I think I don't know if you mentioned that, Jaime, but um, so mm-hmm. it'll play the sound and continue continue the execution. Um, and it's super handy if you if you work in a really quiet office like I do to use audio breakpoint audio audible breakpoints to annoy everybody. But um, yeah, it's uh, good stuff. Just another another tool built, built item. Mark, got something to say about that? Uh, yeah, they're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Mark. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> all right. There's a little note at the very bottom that I think people should know. Yeah, I love that, yeah. About the yeah. Sosumi or Sosumi um, yeah. sound and the history of that. And they, they link to the Wikipedia article about uh, Apple fighting the other Apple um, right, right. Over the trademark agreements, and that's sort of the the genesis right. of that particular name. Yeah, the rumor is that that, and I don't know if it says it here, but I think it's in the Math- Macintosh bathroom reader that um, George Harrison walked into a recording studio once, and uh, the Beatles had an agreement with Apple; they could use the name Apple as long as they never got into the music business. And of course, George Harrison walked into um, a studio somewhere, and they had an Apple computer there, or maybe a Mac. Um, and he sort of went, "What's that?" And they told him, and he went home and called the lawyers. Yeah. So, and he's my favorite Beatle. I can't believe he did that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, so I guess the uh, the Apple guys, uh, tongue firmly planted in cheek, wrote a sound and called it Sosumi. Somewhere in the uh, oh, who's that name? There was some uh, pinup girl that was uh, in. Buried in the ROMs as well, yeah. But if you're into if you're into uh, Easter eggs in the early Apple operating systems, the Macintosh bathroom reader, which and it's got some really funny uh, early stories of tech support as well. Um, it's more about the classic Mac days as opposed to the OS X days, but it's a fun read if you're into Mac Mac lore. I guess that's my other pick, Macintosh bathroom reader. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess that's it, eh? Indeed. So, Jaime, I mean, if people yeah. want to find you on the interwebs, wherever they look. The best place is on Twitter. I'm at Dev of the Hair. All right, and Mark, if people want to find you? Mark R at smapsoft.com or at smapsoft. Has anybody ever used that since you've been telling no. people? No. <laughs> so do him a nope. favor and send him a tweet. Actually, Come on. actually, a couple more people have followed me. Maybe they came from here. Oh, it's possible. maybe. It's maybe. possible. Yep. Hmm. Okay. All right, good. Well, as I said at the top of the show, I'm Tim Mitra, uh, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine, and that's the best way to get a hold of me. And so if we want to, uh, we'll catch up with you guys next week. And uh, yeah, I'll be on my way down to RWDevCon after the recording. So if you're in Washington and you're listening to the show now, come by, say hello, ask me for an MTJC sticker, or I might even have an extra t-shirt. Who knows? So yeah, until next week, we'll say goodbye. Bye. Bye. This has been another wonderful episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you can find a summary and show notes for each episode. We list links to the items we talk about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. All of these things help others find out about the show, and we really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We are also on Twitter and Facebook. Once again, the podcast's Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. You can also support the show by pledging any amount you want on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. 
you know, I grew up in, when video games were at the arcade, right? So, yep. um, you know, like, and I, I, went, I remember them all as they came out one after the other, and then eventually they had like, you know, fifty machines in an arcade, like you see in in um, for Ferris Bueller's Day Off or, or uh, Terminator Two or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, there, there was a time when when it was a big deal when a new video game came out. Yeah. And everybody knew about it, right? Yeah. It was Space Invaders was first, right? Yeah. And then actually, uh, Pong Pong was first. Well, Pong, yeah, of course. And then yeah. Space Invaders, yeah. Space Invaders, and then uh, Missile Command, I think, might have been the third one. Yeah, Missile Command, or, and then Miss with Pac- the trackball, and then Pac Man came out. Oh, after Pac Man, yeah. yeah, and then uh, uh, was it Galaga? Was that the one with the Galaga? Was, yeah, they had the, and then Defender was one came after Galaga. Defender, yeah, right, right. And then, uh, and then it just yeah. you know, then it was like the the, the the one with the knight where you had the choose your own adventure thing and Dudley, you remember Dudley the knight or whatever I forget what it was called. It was like a it was like yeah. a laser disc game. Right? Oh, okay, it yeah. had it had scenes and it would load them up for off a laser disc, right? So, oh but, right, right. But you remember back in the day they used to have those those um, it'd be like a car racing game and it'd be have these cars on ribbons. And you would, you would be looking in a mirror, and uh, it wasn't video. It was actually, like, actual physical dinky toys, you know, glued onto a track, right? And you had to steer this other car through them all. And, of course, your car was, you were looking through the mirror. It was like a one-way mirror, and you looked through the mirror at your car, but the cars you were racing against were on this track that went back and forth, and you had to sort of, like, avoid hitting them. And somehow it knew when you hit a car, and... Yeah, it was back in the mechanical uh, video games, if you will, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was there was one kind of pre pong thing where where it was an LED that would actually move back and forth on a physical right physical thing, and you'd have to you'd have to somehow move your paddle to to hit the thing, even though it was I mean it was but it was a it was an actual LED that was mechanically moving right. across yeah. the yeah. the thing. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, I can't believe we forgot asteroids. Asteroids, yeah. Asteroids was probably mm, yeah, after. Yeah, that was an early one. Yeah. That was yeah. that was probably between. Um, I would say that was between um, around missile that was, before missile command. Because it was really, black I was going to say it was after missile command, but it was right. It was but it was black yeah, and white too, before. right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so it was like early Pong because I think I think uh, Space Invaders was one of the first. Um, and they had that one. They had one with the cars. We had the steering wheel and you'd drive the car around this track. Anyway. Um, where I was going with that was that, so that was my generation and my son's, uh, Jonathan's generation. He's 14 years younger than I am. Um, his generation was the Sega Master System and all that kind of stuff. I think he's part of probably closer to your age, Mark, or no, I guess he's, you're older than him, I think, right? <laughs> Mark, Mark, you would have grown up with the VCR and, and, and maybe yes. a game system at home and early computers, right? I mean, I, I had an Atari, Atari 2600, the, kind yeah. of the, uh, the canonical early game system so when i was in high school you know i i wanted a sinclair or timex had a little computer i think it was a sinclair as well right right but that was the earlier day and of course my parents i i mean it was like 100 bucks there's no way i could ask my dad for that i'm surprised he didn't get one for me actually being an engineer right but we only Mm -hmm. had one television so that kind of killed that idea but anyway so jonathan like i used to have to ask jonathan how to program the vcr when i first you know met carol right because i never even had one um and then, but he had all the gaming systems at that point, and um, so he's been playing video games his whole life and reading comic books and stuff like that, right? Um, 
And that's so for me to go work for a company that you know has a foosball table and has an Xbox and a and a, a Sega Genesis or whatever or a PlayStation. What there's no, that's not a draw for me, right? So I mean, I have a PlayStation Four here, and I played a game on it on this weekend. This weekend, and I haven't played a game on my on my PlayStation in six months. You know, like you know, so it's. Uh, I mean, we're all playing games on our iPhones and stuff like that. But but yeah, that you know, to, to have to try and draw me into working for somewhere or hanging around for the rest of the day, kind of thing. I suppose it changes too when you get married and have kids. and You want to go home and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So. Remember these these things. Is it so we got to have the uh, the special guest star. I don't know who it'll be for the WWC episode here in San Jose. Who's going to be a special guest star? I don't know. You tell me. But it has to be, you know, we have to make a, it has to be a, a, an extra special episode of MTJC. Really? I don't know. Shouldn't it be? <laughs> it seems know. like that's a good way to, to, to sell it. Um, yeah. Well, hopefully we'll be live from the floor of the McHenry Convention Center. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.